listeners and welcome to another edition of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast as always is brought to you by Event, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. As always, I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of Event. As you may know by now, each pod I check in with a special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they're passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. On to my special guest now, and I'm very excited to have my first ever recording artist come on to the Just Checking In pod. This man is a rising star in the British disco and soul scene. I first discovered him actually when I went to see Jocelyn Brown at the Jazz Cafe on my own about, about a year and a half ago, uh, who he was supporting, and I've been absolutely hooked on his sound ever since. He's also someone I now consider a good friend, and I hope this pod will allow him to reach some new audiences and get some new listeners to, and streams as well. So I am delighted to introduce UK recording artist Amir onto the Just Checking In pod. Amir has recently come off a show at Glastonbury, where he performed at the BBC Introducing stage. He's also just released his debut album All or Nothing a few months ago, which we'll provide a link to in the, in the description of the pod if you want to stream or buy it. I've got my copy, and I'm probably on about my probably about 12th or 13th rotation at the moment. Um, Amir, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. How are you? I'm good, man. How's it going? Yeah, I'm not too bad, thanks, mate. Um, now, what an intro. Oh, I, I always make my intros <laughs> as good as possible, mate. They're amazing. <laughs> now, first off, before we start, I have to ask you how your Glasto set went, because I'm sure that must have been not just a huge moment in your life, but something you, I think you had to apply for. You had to sort of beat out a few other artists to get that slot. Is that correct? Well, I didn't apply for it. I think what it was... Beforehand, I went on tour with Gabrielle. Mm. And then uh, Jermaine, who was on X Factor, mm. went on after, and then Gabrielle would, would headline. We did that tour. I think we travelled basically the whole UK and Ireland. Mm. Uh, I get back on, I think, the Thursday, and on the Saturday, I just got a text saying, are you free to play Glastonbury? I was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> go on, then. <laughs> go on, then. Saying, oh, go yeah. on, then. No context no, I think, no, initially, they were just like, oh, yeah, um, I've just been up. My manager texted me. He was mm. like, I've just been asked. If you're, uh, if you're free on Glastonbury weekend to play. Mm. I was like, no, I'm busy. Of course I'm free. <laughs> yeah, man, I'm up for Excellent, that. <laughs> mate. Excellent. Um, so now that we've got that out of the way, shall we get started? Let's do it. We can play games because we are swell. When I was putting together this pod in here, I thought that it would be great to really clearly separate the difference between you as an artist and then the man behind the artist, so to speak. So okay. firstly, we're going to talk about you as an artist now. I think the best place to start is, is how you first got into singing. You know, what age were you when you first picked up a mic? Who encouraged you? And, and when you decided to start singing professionally too? Um, it's funny when you say, like, when did you decide to mm. start singing professionally? Mm. I think that was just always my goal mm. in life. I've, I was lucky enough to just think, okay, I know what I want and I'm going to go for it from a young age. But I think, yeah, the first thing I ever saw on TV was uh, The Dangerous Tour, Michael Jackson. Right, And okay. my mu- And my mum had recorded it on video. And back I, in the day, back VHS in the day of, of yeah, videos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. kids, it's a, it's, a, it's a big thing that you have to <laughs> yeah. push into this machine, you have to rewind it. Recording the adverts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have to forward adverts. over the yeah. adverts, yeah. But my mum had uh, recorded, I think it was, um, the whole show was shown mm. on BBC. And uh, mum had recorded it and I just grew up watching that mm. from when he pops out on the front of the stage in his like sparkly gear and his sunglasses and I'm like sat at the TV with my ma- like my jaws on the floor mm. I'm like what is that and it's like from then I knew I wanted to be a singer so it starts with Michael Jackson mm. really, yeah and, and wh- who were your sort of artistic I mean obviously we've mentioned Michael Jackson there but who else were your sort of our big main artistic influences growing up you know were you very much in awe of the American scene? Did you have any sort of UK artists um, that, that were in the sort of maybe in the 90s and noughties that you sort of considered um, influences on you? Mm-hmm. And what sounds did you attach yourself to when you first started singing and also as your sound evolved into your adult life? Right. That is, I mean, I love all kinds of music. Mm. So I think obviously as it started with MJ mm. and then... Um, Garage, mm. Craig David, and everything. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that just blew up, and I was mm. probably still at primary school for the that. The Inter. Yeah, yeah, all, <laughs> that, all of that stuff, you know, like Garage Girls. Are you ready and, for this one? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. UK, UK, oh, yeah, inside. Oh. Yeah, yeah, so that, that, that kicked in, and then I think after that, because of my brother, actually, because he's, he's a couple of years older than me, 
he started getting into rock music. So mm. then Chili Peppers, Foo Fighters, Nirvana and all this so sort of grunge, stuff. grunge, that sort so of era, all like that Rage Against Machine. So that's when I started yeah, playing Sound drums. Soundgarden, Audio Slave. Exactly. Yeah. And if it wasn't for Foo Fighters, I wouldn't play drums. Amazing. So it's actually Taylor Hawkins is my favourite drummer. And, and like I think the first song I learned to play properly was Break Out by Foo mm. Fighters. And so then, so then I got obsessed with rock music and, and sort of, you know, the pop punk stuff and then Green Day and... Mm. Obviously, then American Idiot came mm. out and I was heavily influenced by all that kind of mm. punk stuff. From then, I started listening to old punks, so The Clash, mm. Pistols and all that sort of stuff. So I thought I, was, I thought I was a proper punk. Look back now, I really wasn't. But <laughs> we, I, thought, I thought I was. And we, um, <laughs> we all go... We, I definitely agree with you in the, in the sense that we kind of have... Your musical education takes you on so many different levels. Yeah, definitely. Do you think that listening to those different genres despite it them being so contrasting to your sound right now, definitely influenced it and shaped it? 100%. I think it's, in, it's definitely... Like, I mean, my love for Eminem has given me a, a, a way of, well, writing... Well, basically new rhyming schemes, because mm. his rhyming scheme is ridiculous, mm. and like, his vocabulary is crazy, and, and I, I wouldn't say I know as many words as him, but his flow, mm. I think, was... The lexicon. It really, yeah. Honestly, really took me in, and, and I think with once I'd moved away from sort of rock and stuff. I got into rap, got into UK grime. Mm. I remember when I Love You by Dizzy Rascal came out. I was at, I think I was I went, just When Stockland came out, I was like, yeah. well, I was in school, stop but I was that, like, stop I just, that, get I was, that, I was, I was just walking around school going, stop that, stop that, get that. Yeah, that was such a jam. I, I loved it. And uh, all that kind of, um, all that kind of grimy stuff, I really got into um, sort of just early secondary school. Mm. But then, then the punk thing came in. And then I think after that, you know, when you, you, you dress like a punk because you listen to punk. And because I was a drummer for ages, I thought, oh, do you know what? When I started listening to, when I started watching Guns N' Roses, mm. got back into Michael Jackson again, watching Queen, uh, Liam, you know, Liam for, uh, from Oasis and stuff mm. like that. I, that's when I was like, okay, I'm not a drummer, I'm frontman. Mm. I want to be up front. Mm. And then I started writing more, uh, more songs and things like that. And uh, just, yeah, just sort of fell into it. Left all the bands I used to be in and just carried on on my own. Mm. And for the listeners, how many instruments do you play? Four. Four. <laughs> yeah. So drums. Yeah. Guitar. Yeah. Ooh, bass. Yep. And I'm going to guess like keyboards. Yeah. 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 Okay. Exactly. Bang and which on. ones did you learn first? <laughs> drums. Drums first. Drums first. I was about eight. So I've been playing for 20 years. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And then what, what did you learn after that? Um... I think I picked up, picked up the guitar because my brother had a guitar. And uh, this funny story, I've never been taught guitar apart from it. He, he just said, right, I'll, give, I'll teach you a G chord and that's it. He taught me the G chord. And from then, mm. I just sort of picked it up myself. And I used to get home an hour early from school, an hour earlier than him. Mm. And uh, I would sit in his room. I'd play the guitar. As soon as I heard the door open, I'd put it back and run back in my room. <laughs> and that, Do you know that's it where played? it started. He, know, know? he knows now. <laughs> he knows now. Not then? Not at the time. Just, you, you hit it well. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Who, who do you consider your peers in the music scene right now then? And Are there any fellow artists that you work with sort of collaboratively or sort of lean on when you need advice? I know, speaking from artists that I know, um, especially in the, in the underground scene in, in the UK, there's a lot of camaraderie there's a lot of people to support there's a lot of bands supporting each other artists supporting each other would you say that's would you say that's a fair assessment and do you do you buy into that as well i think uh i i think recently yeah because when i recently signed before you came to see me um at uh the jazz cafe mm. i just signed with um uh, uh what's it called martial arts um live agency live mm -hmm. booking agency mm -hmm. and so people who are on the same bill tend to be on the same agency mm. and then you start to kind of make friendships make from that. Yeah, and all exactly. that and support, support and, and all that. Yeah, because I suppose there's a little bit of like, oh, how come you got that gig and I didn't, mm. I think, initially. And I'm like, well, I, I don't know, I just got the gig. Mm. But um, when, we're on good, when we're on good gigs together, it, yeah, it's great. It is a togetherness and it's mm. good. And, and who, who specifically would you say you're like, are your friends in the scene or who you lean on when you say like, I've got this idea for a song I think it sounds like this, you know, but, you know, what do you think of it and stuff like that? I tend to go to, there's a guy who lives down uh, in Fairham near Southampton. His name is James Burt. I write a lot with him. Mm. And most of my album, most of the first album is actually written with him. Mm. Um, initially, it was sort of like, you know, when you're starting in the industry and you work with certain A&R people or certain management, they send you to people they know. Mm. And so I was sent to um, Peter and Daniel Cutfather, who I wrote, feel for you and drench me with your lust with mm. and then they sent me to a guy called James Burt 
and basically the rest of the album, other than Late Night London, which is a song I wrote myself, mm. um, was written with it with him. So I I tend to he's normally first port of call or a guy called Cameron Warren in Liverpool. Mm. He's he's the other guy I write with, mm. and uh, we're probably nearly second album nearly finished. Mm. And he's right. I'm sorry, that's, that's a bit exclusive, that. by the way. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah well, we're, we're not promoting yet, not but net, you know, yet. we've got we've got a All bunch of songs. Time. Yeah, we've got um, a bunch of songs. I think it's fair to say that the the disco and R and B and funk scene in the UK is is something that's really flourishing right now, um, and it's also thriving. I think across you know America and France. You know, America got like Sampa Jewel and Dirty Radio, Skyless Benz. French Rebellion and, and all those sort of artists and then you've got sort of Toro and Imoir mm-hmm. in, in the mainstream and then you've got sort of France the likes of Jean Tanique and in the UK you've got likes of yourself Patuawa Eka Rayawa who are doing really big things right now yeah. um, and then Australia as well they've got a really big scene you know Midnight Pool Party and people like Cosmos Midnight and Winston Surfshirt you know do you where do you see yourself fitting within this scene and are there any artists in that list you're sort of aware of or you look to inspiration for your own sound? I kind of feel like I, my structure of writing is probably a bit more pop than some of those, mm-hmm. um, which isn't a bad thing. I mean, I think, we, I think every, everyone you've mentioned there is definitely capable of mainstream mm. success. Mm. And obviously that's, that's what essentially that's all the goal we're all is. Yeah, you're for. all striving for. Yeah, sure. That's all, that's all we want, really, is just mainstream success so that we can put food on the table, look after our children. You know what I mean? That's mm. basically all we want. And mm. uh, as long as we can do it through something that we love. In terms of where do I fit in that scene, I, I kind of don't mind slotting anywhere, really. Mm. I, I, I tend not to feel like... Don't let's just fit in. Yeah. yeah. I suppose, well, because, obviously, like I said to you, growing up, you know, you listen to rap, listen to rock, punk... Grime, new rock and roll, old rock and roll, mm. old stuff, new stuff, all this sort of stuff. Jamiroquai is one of my big mm. influences oh, as well. Oh, massive. And so I think you could probably hear it from some yeah, of my stuff. Yeah, definitely, mate, definitely. Um, and it's because of that, I think because of my writing, like the, my style of writing, the way I write lyrics, the way I approach music, which is always very much, I write my songs from the heart. Mm. I don't tend to make up stories. All my songs are true stories. Mm. That, it, it's, it's hard to pigeonhole me there because mm. I think... You know, you can always just be the usual fucking pop pop act that just writes the same old love songs over and over again. Mm. Or I can write, tell you proper stories, mm. and that, essentially that's probably why I'm not not liking the pigeonholing. But I probably haven't really been pigeonholed into anything other than funk, soul, and that's not really. It's so vast, it's not pigeonholing. Yeah, it's, you know? not, it's just not a bad pigeonhole. Exactly thing, right. Yeah. It's a good place to yeah. sit. <laughs> um, any artist's stage name is one that they'll use for a myriad of reasons, you know, establishing their persona, using it artistically in their songwriting, um, and also sort of creating new personas. So the likes of Eminem, he's created several different personas which he's used to, in his songwriting yeah, lyrically. Definitely. And also separating the stage life from their personal life as well. Um, you know, what was the inspiration behind yours? Mine is my real name. Mm-hmm. And I figured that it's, I mean, just drop the surname, mm. Amir, quick to the point, to the point. And I felt like there is very little separation between um, my art and me as a person mm. in the sense of what I'm, what I'm talking about. I, I use my real life in my art is mm. what I'm saying. Um, obviously, when I'm on stage and I'm dancing and I'm singing and I'm like waving my arms about, obviously I'm not in the pub doing that. You yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. But, so there is obviously a separation. But I kind of felt like, you know, it's quick to the point. Amir is my, it's my real name. Here's my real music. Here's my life. Take it or leave mm. it. Let's talk about your debut album now, All or Nothing, um, which came out in June. So first of all, how did it come about? What was the creative process behind it? And, and just tell the listeners a bit more about that. Well, I um, used to be in cover bands and stuff like that, but I was always writing on the side, all, all my own stuff, very much just acoustic or sat at the piano just writing that stuff, and I didn't really know how to produce or anything like that. And um, when I stopped, when I, re- I just wanted to stop doing that. I wanted to be an artist in my own right. I didn't want to just be a pub singer or, mm. you know, playing at functions and things like that. And I didn't want to do that anymore. I wanted to write and create. So, you know, we, we got in with um, some management, treated me like, you know, treated me poorly, wasted a lot of money, blah, blah, blah. And then from that, bred a lot of songs mm. and, rese- and, you know, mm. hurt. Turned it into a positive. It, I've yeah, turned it into yeah. a positive now, for sure. And from there, we were picked up by decent management and they put me in with different... Um, Producers, one of uh, one of which was um, Cutfather Productions, Peter and Daniel, who I've worked closely with, and out of nowhere we wrote "Drench Me with Your Lust," mm. and they Amazing were showing song. me. Cheers, Amazing man! Song. Thank you. And we were. <laughs> it's so funny because I think the first time I met them, 
they were here working with Fleur East. Mm. And they were like, right, we've got a six hour window, 6 p.m. to midnight. Mm. We're in Wendy House, Shepherd's Bush. Can you make it? I said, I'm there, I'll mm. do it. Had a cold. I had a horrendous cold, but I was like, I'm going to do it. Start. I'm going to do it. I've got to be there. I've got Lem to do sip. it. Lem <laughs> sip. I think I probably had a beer. No, I'm joking. But um, no, I was just, uh, so I went there. I went in, I met them. Really nice guys. And then they're just showing me all these kind of ideas that they've got. Just playing me the, you know, foundation beats. Mm. And we came across this one and I was like, that felt good. Mm. Uh, let, let's write to that. And so like, da, 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 da. Mm. Dun, 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 dun. I was like, and then I just out of nowhere went, I want you to dress me with your lust. From there, I just wrote the lyrics in like 15 minutes and I went 15 in. 15 minutes, as yeah, quick as that? Oh, done. wow. I don't, know what, I don't know what comes up, but that's what I kind of think. It's like the ones that you take time over, the, generally not the, not the good songs. Mm. The ones that are instantaneous, the ones that are instant. That feel good, that feel good that's, moment. Yeah. That's when you know if it's instant to you, it's, it's more likely to mm. be instant to a listener. Mm. Um, and what are your favourite tracks off the album, the ones which carry sort of the most emotional significance to you? So my favourite is Late Night London, but I know nice. other people might have their own choice, but what are, you, what are your choices as well? Oh, God. See, it's, fun, it's funny that, because I, Drench Me With Your Lust is obviously, a, a, it's a very sexual song, mm. so it's something that everyone can identify with, mm. in whichever way you are. Sexuality yeah, you whichever are, sexuality that, yeah, you sure. are. Um, However you, look, however you look at yourself, you can identify with that. I feel like my most personal songs mm. are probably If You Don't, I Do, and No One Else mm. are definitely the most personal ones. Mm. And I think I just, I just remember how negative my life was at the time, how bad it was, and how bad I was feeling emotionally that I needed to hit rock bottom in order to bounce back to write those songs, I mm. think. And yeah, it was yeah, through really, really bad times in my... Um, my then relationship it, that, so yeah something good came out of something very bad and that's mm. kind of how I try and use my music mm. and what was that feeling like after that album was released was it this massive endorphin rush was it more of a, a relief that you could say oh great it's finally done now I can relax or was it a bit of both yeah it's one of those like oh my god I've got finally I've got an mm. album out you know I mean there's something that you've been gunning for for years it's like you know you think you've written your first album because of the first 13 tracks you've written when you're when you're like 14 or whatever you think that's going to be your first yeah. album because that first like, album for a lot of artists is like 10 years five years in the yeah making, definitely and they'll use some of those demos and those tracks that they used five years ago into that debut album and polish sure. them up yeah totally and these are all fresh songs apart from save me which um when with old management i actually met someone in america and i wrote save me with um a bunch of producers there and that, that was the only one that wasn't written in the album sessions, if you like, in, in the sort of... It was one of those songs where I thought, it's, it's too good not to put on there, even though it's completely different. Mm. Like, I mean, it's, it's sonically completely different to the rest of the album, but still in a weird way kind of fits because it breaks up... It, it breaks up the, the mm. last two songs. You need those it's tracks nice between the bangers, in. don't you? You need those, like, feel-good... Like, yeah, I suppose so. Sometimes. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. And a lot of my friends who, obviously, when we grew up listening to a lot of R&B, you know, like, you know, Next, Wifey, all those kind of... So that 90s and early noughties kind of R&B, it, it's nostalgic for them to listen to that one, whereas I think new fans really like the rest of the album, mm. I think. And how have the crowd reactions been when you played the tracks from it and, and how do you feed off that when you're on stage? It's really funny because I, I think I walk on quite unassuming mm. and I don't ever, I'm not that guy that walks on saying, hey guys, I'm Amir, welcome mm. to the show. Mm. I'd, I just say, press play. And then I just walk <laughs> on. <laughs> That's what I do, honestly. Yeah. I, I, I don't want to talk to the audience until they know what I'm about because they're all looking like, wow, well, he's, he's just wearing a fucking denim jacket. You know, he doesn't look like a star, probably. Do you know what I mean? He probably doesn't look like a star. And then when, I, I just need to see you start a burning flame. When that kicks in, you just see, like, people's face just like, what Change, yeah. I remember when I heard that, I was like... <laughs> Rah! <laughs> what is this? <laughs> yes, man. Oh, cheers, mate. But no, it is like that because, um, you know, I, I walk on stage. I never walk on and sort of like put my arms up or anything like that. However, Glastonbury was different. Mm. Now, because I had a band for Glastonbury, they went on first and did these kind of like swell, like, all that kind of build up. Really sort of. Jamiroquai opening of the Space Cowboy mm. kind of album, like that kind of feel. And then I walked on about 30 seconds later. And so then I got a clap from the audience. So I was like, yeah, go on then, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, but other than that, no, the, the reaction from the crowd is always like one of surprise at the beginning and one of 
that was blinding, and that's all you want, really. Mm. That's what that's what I do it for. And, and I think the next the natural next step of this discussion is, is to chat about what it's like for you to perform live. You mm. know, you know, tell the listeners about that whole process before you go on stage, the nerves and anxiety maybe beforehand, the feeling you have when you're performing, and that endorphin rush when you get off stage. Okay, the, uh, so. Once we've sound checked and I'm happy with the sound, then it's that waiting game, which always just snails by. You know, it's like when it's honestly an hour feels like you've been waiting all day. Mm. And so you just sat there, you know, you're pacing. If there's beers in the fridge, then fine. Mm. You know, that can make it go a little <laughs> bit quicker. If there isn't beer in the fridge, then it goes very slow. <laughs> and you're like, oh God, I just want to just play. I just want to play. Um, especially when you know there's a massive crowd out there. So like festivals, for example, are obviously they're going to be... No, no one's necessarily there for you, but you've got a massive crowd to play to. And uh, I'll, I'll, take it, I'll take it back to um, Jocelyn Brown gig. That was my first major support gig. Really? So I was really quite, like, mm. on edge a little bit. Mm. And uh, I think my dad was really proud that he was there and he was backstage with me and stuff. I was like, you know, you're going you're gonna to be good. And I was like, yeah, it's going to be fine. I was on the outside. I'm like, it's going to be fine. But I'm like, inside, I'm like, can't fucking wait. Come on, bring <laughs> yeah. it on. Bring it on. And then that bit when you walk on stage, when you're like, right, now, and you walk on stage, you just hope. That split second, you just think, I hope everything goes all right. Mm. Then you start singing, and then it's over in a flash. Mm. And that moment when you start, and you see all those people, like people who don't know who you are, when you see their facial expression change, you're like, this is why we do mm. it. And when, you, when you're on stage, do you feel like it's a, a place where you can express yourself and the place where you can truly be yourself? Or maybe is it a hundred, escapism? hundred percent. Mm. I can fully be the version of me that I most enjoy being. Mm. I, I, yeah, I love that. Yeah, no, that's it, really. Yeah. <laughs> tour, tour, yeah, touring is another topic, I think, which is very multi-layer when it comes to its impact on artists' mental health. Sure. Um, focusing on you, though, Amir, you know, how do you find touring? Is it something that you that you struggle with, or is it something you sort of embrace? Have you gotten used to it? What are, you, what are your sort of thoughts on it? I'm built to be on the road. Right, I think. In what sense? In the sense that, you know, when there's a time, right now I'm very frustrated because uh, I'm, I'm at that sort of waiting period where we know, we know what, what the plan is that we need to execute come February. Mm. And from now till February, I'm just trying to get days in the studio. Christmas is coming up, so there's gonna be a break. Obviously, I, you know, it's great to be with my family and stuff like mm. that, but being on the road and performing is my, that's what I want. And so it doesn't, so it, it I think it positively impacts me um, and my mental health for sure, mm. um, being on the road, because I, I feel like I'm supposed to be there. Mm. And then when you're just sitting around at home, after one week, you're like, oh, when's the next one? Mm. That's, that's where I'm at. I'm the opposite of home comforts. Yeah, sure. We, we've seen many artists and groups almost end as artists and groups because the impact of touring has been yeah. so massive and you know you, I think I remember when I mean he was before my time but I still loved him his music and, and what he represented um, George Michael oh I love George said, Michael when he sort of stopped touring when he did the Faith Tour and I think the 90s and it was his massive ridiculous world crazy tour amount of days, like yeah. a crazy amount of days and he said that that basically impacted on his ability to tour from then on onwards yeah, yeah. Have, you, have you seen have you seen how it's impacted other bands and artists? And, and do you think it's spoken enough, enough about in the, in the music industry? Um, I think, well, it's, it's, often, it's often brought up. I just don't think it's discussed, is it, really? Mm. Uh, but, I, I mean, for, for other bands, I, I can't really say anything other than my opinion, which is, you know, I haven't done a 119-date tour. Mm. So, like, I think the longest tour I've done as, a, as an artist in my own right, away from cover bands, is probably three weeks being away from home and one of those we were at home mm. like we managed to drop home because we were in London anyway mm. which doesn't really count because you've still got your tour head on mm. so you know when, when your mum's asking you okay do you need this do you need that it's like mum can't let me just do it you know, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, yeah. I'm still in road mode mm. so do you know what I mean it's, and I'll get, I'll get quite frustrated and I think they get frustrated with me so it's best to just stay away and on the road you're properly in that Mm. I'm 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 in work mode. Just because I have a beard doesn't mean I'm not on work mode. Mm. It's okay, you know. I know what to do. So, if I'm going to have four pints, then that's that's it. I'm going to bed after that. Mm. Don't worry. I'm not having a bender every night. <laughs> yeah. It's okay, you know. Does 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 because I know a lot of artists um, sometimes drink for nerves for gigs and all that. Yeah. Like, obviously, with my experience with alcohol, sometimes the more you drink, the more you forget. Um, does it ever affect performance or is it sort of just more of a leveller? I haven't allowed it to affect okay. performance um, 
for a long time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, when... Oh, it was before I turned pro, if you mm. like, um, in terms of gunning for this side of the business. When I was doing the cover band stuff, I'd have a couple of beers because that was all you had time for rather than you just sat there, you know, taking your Jack Daniels to the stage, you know. It's not like that. For me, it's like, you know, you'll ask for beers on the rider and I'll, I'll probably have one and then I'll go on. Mm. And that's purely to kill time, really, mm. more than anything else because mm. that time to, to wait, wait for I mean, stage I, yeah, is the worst. Oh, God, it is... I, I'm putting on gigs and stuff, I'm putting on events, just the wait between getting everything ready Set up and then doing it and oh, starting. God, yeah. it's the worst. But you're just sitting back, you're like, what do I do? Got yeah, do. I think also, I think that's the other thing because of touring, because it's so um, long, fast paced, people look at touring as um, you're playing a show, meet a load of girls. And that's it. It's like, no, we've got to get up early. We've got to check out the hotel. We've got to, Get in the car, pack up. You can't, you're never in one place long enough to even unpack your suitcase. Mm. Do you see what I mean? Mm. So, like, when we were on the Gabrielle tour, we were away for a solid two weeks. And um, the first show was in Glasgow. What does that mean? You leave the day before. So, because my tour manager, who I work with regularly, his name is um, Paul Hill. Shout out, Paul. I love Big you. Big shout out, Paul. He's a top man. Uh, he's, a, he's a very experienced tour manager. And so he knows what he's talking about. Mm. So we had to travel, I think we drove, because we were going to get the ferry from Glasgow uh, or from Scotland over to um, Ireland, because the next day, we had, it was a travel day, mm. and then the day after that was Ireland. So it's like, a lot of the days you're not playing, but that travelling is more tiring than playing, because now there's no adrenaline. There's nothing to pick you up. You've got to build it up. You have to, yeah. you have to, you have to find it somewhere else, mm. and that's probably why people get so fucked up on the road, but mm. I, I'm built for it. I, I know how to take it. I've been on tour for 10 years cover bands, my stuff, whatever. I've been on the road for so long. I've done all these travelling things for, for ages. So, I, yeah, I'm, I'm built for it. I'm fine with it. And um, before we forget, where can people listen to the album or buy it? You can buy it everywhere. Excellent. <laughs> Amazon, Apple Music, Google Play, iTunes, Spotify, everywhere. And it's all or nothing. It's and it's a mere spell A-M... Capital A-M, small I, capital R. That's it, Excellent. Man. And just quickly as a final point... I know you briefly mentioned the album. What other sort of... Are you working on any other projects? Maybe any feature vocals on any other tracks with other artists? What can you sort of say? Or hint at, if hint you can't at. say. Um, well, so I, I am obviously writing and recording a lot of a lot more songs as Amir, as my own, my own stuff. And just seeing what comes of it, really. I mean, I've, I've been approached a few times by a few, um, a few artists saying we should get together, we should work. I'm just basically waiting to set a date, really. Not, not with anybody in particular, though. No, I can't really. Okay. Yeah. We'll wait. We'll TBC. Well, we'll see. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. We talked about Amir, the artist. Now let's talk about the man behind that alias and the artist. So, firstly, how have you found navigating the industry generally? Um. Very horrible at the beginning, mm. I'll be honest. Uh, it was, it has destroyed a lot of things in my personal life, a lot. And the reason being is because the people that, that said that they could manage me and take me, take me up basically showed themselves to be... Um, and basically I just, I, I look back on it now and it's, 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 it's painful to listen, to, to, to go back to. But, but what they did was um, just, Rinse, rinse me and my dad of money and um, promised, us lo promised us a load of stuff that we were going to be this by this year and this by next year and all this sort of stuff. And turns out they were, just, they were literally lining their pockets and that was it. Mm. And then when I got picked up by good management, I think it was a chance meeting with my dad it had with, with someone else, it took me to a group called Karma Artists. And they're, they're good, great people. Ross, shout out to Ross. He's a really nice guy. And... He's probably one of the nicest people in the industry I've ever met, really, like at, at this point, for sure. Um, and he actually put me in touch with Cutfather, um, James Burt, Cameron Warren up in Liverpool. So it, start, it, it really starts with, with them, the proper music journey. I was talking to this guy, Paul O'Duffy, I think his name is, because my current manager knew him. So my current manager, Carly, um, put me in touch with this guy. So we went in to record something. And I told him the story about, you know, being ripped off and stuff. And he actually just said, I don't know anyone in this industry who hasn't been ripped off. Wow. And that's I'd quite a big honestly thing. just told me, I was like, why is that acceptable? Mm. How is that 
okay. I mean, there's no, I mean, there's nothing you can do about it. I can't, I can't just go there and and like find these people and just say you fucked my life mm, up. Mm. The best way to get revenge is to do me and, and be successful, be and successful, yourself. and mm. not give up. They obviously thought I was going to give up. Mm. I ain't giving up shit, mate. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> That's what I love to hear. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not gonna. And so it's been a really tough journey at the beginning. It's really impacted my personal life. It's also impacted maybe who I was then and who I am now. You know, because there's obviously, I think everybody will identify with this. There are certain points that, or things that happen, situations that you find yourself in in life that you're just never the same person beforehand. And I think that it's a shame, but that's probably where I'm at. It's a shame. And I don't mean to sound bad. I think but I'm it's, happy it's with the reality, way I am, though. But it's your reality. And it's, it important, is, yeah. it's important, I think, that you say it because Ooh. I think for a lot of artists, they. They maybe they might they might not know this coming out, and I think it's really important that you've set it out that it's not just roses and and no, petals God, and, no. and hundred and you know platinum albums and all that sort of stuff. Mate. What would you say to sort of young artists starting out about your experiences and and how to navigate it as well? Um, just literally keep your guard up. I think just don't just try not to get really excited by prospects and promises that people say. You know, just try your best to. Be as real as possible and still keep your dream alive is very easy to do. Just make sure you can do that. Keep, just, your, keep just your feet on the floor. Keep your feet mm. on the ground. I mean, the thing is, I, I don't think I, I don't think I was away with the fairies. Mm. I, I, I think I became aware of it more than everyone else, but I didn't have any power to do anything. Mm. Do you see what I mean? Mm. So, it, yeah, just and it's that helpless situation. You don't feel like you're really in control. helpless. Yeah. Honestly, I've you know, had no control over anything as well. It's just. It's, you know, you've got this person trying to mould you into something that you're not as well. That's a really uncomfortable position to be in. A lot in. of artists, I feel like, wear this. That as oh, well. but I don't. Mm. I don't dress like that. Wear that. Say this. Speak like this. Here's your script for the radio. Fuck off. Mm. I can't do it. That's mm. why. That's why I've refused media training. Mm. I've refused it because if people want to know me as an artist and as a man, then let me give you the real thing. Mm. And what have been the main positives as well to working in the industry? The positives are once you do start getting taken seriously, just more things come up. More people have respect. Uh, people respect my opinion as an artist now as well. People will, honestly, mates that are musicians as well will send me stuff and say, what do you think of this, man? I really want to know your opinion. Yeah, that's mate. But then you get other producers who are sending you stuff saying, do you fancy getting on this? Mm -hmm. And then just more work comes in, which mm -hmm. is great. Was I that mean, a milestone for you when that started happening? Um, I think the gigs were more because there was a long time where I was just in and out of studios gathering content. If you don't have content, what's the point in playing live? But mm. live is obviously where I feel like I come alive properly. So the, the icing on the cake was when, we, when, when tours started coming in, really. But, mm. um, it, you know, I say it's not all sunshine and rainbows, but some of it really is. Mm. And, you know, it, it's, it's fun. It's hard, though. It's tough. In the run-up to your album, you did an interview where you talked about um, your South Asian heritage and the inspiration you take from that, but also how perhaps parts of the industry have tried to pigeonhole you with it or label you. You know, tell the listeners about that. You know, has it been something frustrating for you or something you've just sort of grown to live with? Um, I can't help being that. Do you know what I mean? So my dad was born in Punjab in India. My mum was born in Leicester of Indian parents. And I was born in London of Indian parents, you know mm. what I mean? So no one can help that. So, but it's really funny that when you say pigeonhole, do you know, do you know what it is? It's Asians mm. doing it. Mm. Nobody else is even concerned about what heritage I am apart from other Asians. Really? It's, honestly, I'm telling you. So in the music scene, or do you just mean like in the, in the local, oh, in the all, community? All, all of it as yeah, well, yeah. everything, all of it, because... Oh, God, the amount of my dad's mates is like, oh, why don't you put some Bhangra in there, mate? It's because I don't fucking <laughs> listen to Bhangra, mate. I put up with it at weddings. <laughs> you know, It's not your thing. It's not my Let thing, me have mate. It. Let I'm, me have I'm it. A, I'm a funkster, mate. You know, yeah. you know I, I funk, I'm a funk man. Mm. You know, so, it, you know, oh, why you, do you know what you should do? You should put a bit of Indian in this. You should put a bit of Indian in that. Why? <laughs> well, are, you, are you telling Ed Sheeran or Bruno Mars to do that? <laughs> fuck off, man. <laughs> so, I, I, li I love the way that you kind of like can, can, um, can self-deprecate and make light of it but it is it, it, it definitely feels like something that we, we need to be moving away from for sure it started annoying mm. it started off annoying because it was something that I think I was sort of something was put in my mind to sort of try and get away from it I don't think I need to get away from it 
I'm very proud to be who I am. I'm very proud of my um, Indian heritage, absolutely. But then I'm just as proud to be English. Mm. I was born here, raised here. I, uh, I was schooled here, educated here. So, it, you know, I, I am England. Mm. Do you know what I mean? But I have Indian heritage, which I'm very proud of. Mm. And you're not going to, you know, necessarily adhere to a certain stereotype of what someone wants you to be. What, I, why, why do you think it's important to break down those labels in the industry? Because I think there's so many not even just Indian artists, but like Asian people who just get stuck with this thing. And judging by my music, if my name was Adam Smith, mm. I wouldn't have made the future sounds of BBC Asian Network, mm. let's face it. Mm. BBC Asian Network have been the biggest positive for me in the music industry. Shout out, let's shout um, out a few. Bobby Friction. Love them. Um, yeah. Honestly, yeah, big, Bobby big, Friction, big great guy. There. Yasser, lovely guy. Harpscore, wonderful person. Mm. Honestly, they are fantastic and they've really helped my career and, and they, they continue to do so. I love them. Shout out Shay who got me on there. Um, but it's not them, it's listeners. Oh, I see. Okay. That it's good to make obviously that Obviously, ask clear. me yeah, yeah. about like, oh, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? You know, if you do this, maybe you'll be more successful in India. It's like, mm. well, yeah, that's fine. We'll approach that because I want to be successful everywhere. Mm. So, you know, if we're going to put a bit of Chinese things in there to, mm. to get successful in China, I'll do it. But... Mm. Not to the expense of my art, you know, I, I, I want to share what I am, mm. truly. And I can't just decide, oh, just because my name's Amir and I'm an Indian boy mm. means we should put doubler and, and door drums and all mm. this sort of stuff in my music, because that's not who I am. I find it, like, quite jarring that you've been asked to go back to that sound if that makes sense i don't know if it's necessarily go back to the sound i know yeah, exactly what you mean yeah. and i appreciate it because it is it is it's always because it should, way you around. shouldn't be it's always this way around. yeah yeah i suppose um yeah i guess it's just you know how how do i speak like basically i've been asked this question how do i speak like a white man sing like a black guy and look like a brown guy that's so problematic in that question uh, i mean it's a ridiculous <laughs> yeah, yeah, question yeah, yeah. to be asked I, like, I don't even know what you fucking yeah. mean <laughs> <laughs> you know i mean my surroundings at school i mean most of my friends are, are, are white and black really i've got mm. a few indian friends mm. but then they're they're like me mm. you know so you know we grew up in one area a melting pot that's like, all yeah, of us yeah, of course yeah. Like, yeah. And, yeah and then just because the music that spoke to me was was punk, was rock, was funk, um, you know, that acid jazz thing that, mm. you know, uh, that funky pop that Jamiroquai was doing, mm. George Benson. So mm. I'm, this, is, this is my thing. Mm. Watching a Bollywood film and listening to their music has never made me think, oh, I want to do that. Mm. I want to sound like that. Mm. Never. Mm. But then... You know, that doesn't, that's not to take anything away from them. Because it's still a great sound. It's, and it's amazing still music. Do, uh, amazing music. Yeah, yeah, fantastic lyrics. It's sung amazingly. It's acted brilliantly. Mm. So take nothing away from that. But then... It's just not your thing. It's not me. Yeah. So I, I don't feel like I need to give a shit. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. <laughs> do, you, do you feel like you've encountered any barriers, whether overtly or sort of covertly or subconsciously from the within, within industry because of your heritage? Um... I, I know it's hard I to pinpoint because if there's know. nothing overtly, then it's harder. But yeah, I don't think I, nothing, I don't think I don't think openly. Mm. No, if I have, then I have. I don't know because well, that's I, good that I'd you've like not experienced think... it openly yet. No one's ever made any sort of racist comments to you about. Oh, your... of course they are fan, Well, not fans, but like people who have seen me play as oh, I didn't expect that sound from you and stuff like that. And you don't yeah, know that's what the that subconscious means. bias is. I don't it? know yeah. what that means. I don't know whether they they expected me to be. I don't know what. I don't know. Yeah. It's kind of like when people thought Eminem was black when they never mm. heard, when they'd only heard him. Or like Michael Payne, the rapper. Who, yeah, yeah, and everyone thought. So I used to see comments like sat thumbs up if Michael Payne sounds white. I was just like, it's just. Well, just I, mean, I don't even know what that means. It's yeah. just fucking ridiculous. But yeah. anyway, I, I don't think I've ever had like you're an Asian, you don't belong here. Like mm. none of that. I think people have. And that's good. Definitely. Yeah, that's yeah. great. I think people have listened to the music, and I'm there on my own credit, which I'm happy about. I mean, that's that's what you want. I've never been one. Moving on from music now, and one thing that I know really helps you in your life is exercise, yes. um, particularly boxing. Um, and it's something that I used to do when I was a bit more of a chubster than I am now. Um, <laughs> first of all, when did you get into boxing and why did you decide to take it up? You know what? I was a, I was a chubby teen. Mm. And I think I'd have been about 16 at the time. And my cousin 
wasn't really chubby, but he'd lost loads of weight in like one month. Mm. I said, how did you do that? He goes, boxing. And that was enough for me at the time. <laughs> that was the light bulb. Like, right, yeah. I'm sick of being chubby. Let's, let's, yeah. let's fix this. And um, I started there. And when I was like 16, 17, 18, 19, I'm, I'm there thinking four rounds a day was good. Mm. Like good exercise. No, it isn't. I mean, it's a good start. Mm. Now I'm doing 10 rounds every day. And I love it. Like absolutely love boxing. I think it's an amazing sport. I think it's... It, also, like, deeper than that, not, not for me, because I don't think I ever really needed to be kept off the street. I had music always, so it's nothing like that. But, like, it, keep, it takes kids off the street. It really sorts you out and um, gives, you, gives kids who, don't, who wouldn't have it a sense of routine and structure. discipline. Mm. Structure is exactly mm. the word. Yeah, that's what I should have said. And, yeah, boxing really sorts me out. Did you find it a, a good leveller as well for people that you were in the gym with or... Like kids that you boxed with or around, did you find it's a leveler? Well, I never as... went. I never went to a, a boxing gym. Oh, I think this okay. Is, this is right. the thing. I didn't. I didn't actually train properly and get trained until I was twenty-three. Because mm. um, I was still chubby. Mm. <laughs> you know, I was still eating KFC and drinking lager <laughs> yeah. and, and all sorts of stuff. Other chicken outlets are available. <laughs> uh, basically, yeah. I was just like, just I went into intense training with a match. Shout out um, Terry. Shout out to him, Terry Longmore. Um, he works at a gym called Genesis, and it's in the Shepherd's Building in Shepherd's Bush. That, that really made me understand boxing fully. Mm. And so it's not just punching a bag. You've got, shadow, you've got shadow boxing, you've got skipping, you've got lunges, you've got squats, you've got all these different things that, you, that I didn't think of. And now that I know it, I can structure my, my workouts around boxing and then as a treat smash the crap out of the bag mm. <laughs> do you know what I mean and it is it's it's something that I've I've seen other people take up boxing and we I just I feel like a better person after my workouts mm. because there's so much pent-up energy and when I'm when I'm hitting a dry spell of writing as well I need something mm. and boxing is that something boxing and cooking mm. and cooking obviously healthy food after boxing is something that I really enjoy doing mm. as well so and how does it help your mental health greatly I think and why on particular day will you do a, you know, a workout? Is it to let off some steam, relax, maybe switch off from the world? Um, sort of what are the reasons or rationality that you do it? One would be if I'm, if I'm given two weeks to do a photo shoot, then I will absolutely cane it in the gym. Do you know what I mean? Because I don't want we to... We all look, do that as well. Yeah, yeah so. I don't want to <laughs> look like... Uh, I don't want to look bad. I don't want to feel like I look bad in, in front of a camera because I hate the camera. Like, mm. I hate it and I don't think it likes me very much either. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'll work out for that. That's one thing. But I think, for me, in, in my day-to-day, -day, it's something I just love doing. Mm. And it's, you know, I don't live with my son because me and his mum aren't together. So I've got time to go to the gym. Mm. And so, yeah, it's, it's also, it's really good. I find it better in the morning. So I'll wake up early, I'll have my breakfast, let that digest, then I'll go. I've got energy, I'm ready to work out. It, it's, it's, it just it gives me a bit of structure in, a, in an otherwise crazy music lifestyle that doesn't really have the same routine every single day. It's good to just get that when you're not on the road. But I will change for you, my love Right till the end We touched on it briefly there, Amir, but another big part of your life is, is your son and, and fatherhood more generally. Yeah. Um, so firstly, how old were you when you became a dad? And talk to me a bit about that. 25 when he was born. So same age as me right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't even know how to drive yet. I'm still learning. Yeah, yeah no. that's quite a scary thought. Dude, I was, I was not prepared at all. And I think I, I, I should have had a bit more guidance and a bit more help. But, you know, it is what it is. And mm. he's, he's literally the only reason I do anything now mm. is him. And how did, your, how did your life change after that moment? I was with his mum... For, since we were 17 and when when he arrived I think obviously the stresses and everything of having having Ronnie and completely unprepared because I still lived at home she still lived at home and so then he lives with them mm. you know my son lives with them and uh, I you know I, I could have I could have done with a bit more help mm. uh, from my side at home but um you know I should uh, yeah it, it's it's to me it's still a positive impact because mm. he's my favourite person in the world. Mm. He really is. And he's 
proper cute man mm. <laughs> yeah. and he's running around he, he recognises the Arsenal badge I'm happy mm. it's like, you so know, you my work well. here is done yeah. <laughs> no not well wish you, know. <laughs> you, give, you give him a life of, um, of struggle basically I've that, given yeah. him his early life of struggle because yeah. when, when I was born we were flying. I know, mate. Not, when, I, when, when I was growing up, we Arsenal were proper flying. <laughs> you yeah. know, but, you know, he's 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 um, he's literally the only reason I do this. Mm. And is it is it hard for you, sort of, seeing him? I, sp- I presume you only see him maybe t- twice a week. Twice, three twice times a week. Yeah. yeah. And is that hard for you? Yeah, it's horrible. Mm. It's horrible to. It's amazing to pick him up. It's horrible to drop him off. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. But he's also just started nursery, so he's. He's kind of a he's a bit sort of adjusting to new new lives, and he doesn't often want to leave the mm. house on a day that he's already left the house to go mm. and do something first. So it's getting a bit tougher now because he's getting older. He's going to be three where well, we're in November now. He'll be three next month. Mm. So uh, he's growing up fast, man. Mm. But it's 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 of course it's a tough gig, but it's much tougher for his mum because she's there all the time. Mm. It's tough on her parents because you know they're there all the time, and it's, it's tough for me because I'm not there all the mm. time. But you got to take the rough with the smooth, man. Have you shown him any of your music yet? I think he recognises it. Okay. He recognises it when, when it's me. He'll, he'll know it from, obviously, the screen as well. Mm. But he's just started playing on my drums. Oh, really? I will show do you, you the video got, later. Do you reckon he's got the skills? You know what's really funny? Is Even that at that age? Before, he's obviously just banging it, banging mm. it, banging it. Now, he can't reach the pedal, but we all know the... Uh, right? He's doing it with the floor tom, so he's going... <laughs> and he's hitting the different. I'm like, bro, you know, kid, you know this. It's amazing that he's he's really picking it up fast. His favourite song is "Come As You Are" by Nirvana. Wow. Now, so grunge if he's fan not, early. If he's not a music, if he's not a musician's son, then uh, I mean, it's I mean, that's enough for me to know he's mm. mine. You know what I mean? Mm. Other than the fact he looks just like me. Yeah. <laughs> how do you how do you balance the performing and, and touring side of your life as as an artist with being a dad for your son as well? You know, do you bring him to some of your shows or do you like to keep sort of that so that side of you separate? He's been to one of my shows. I played at a big um, festival in High Wycombe, and uh, I don't live that far away from High Wycombe, and my ex missus doesn't live that far over so her her parents brought Ronnie to watch me we all still get on mm. that's important that's good. to yeah. make sure I, I get that across we, we you know there's no problems we've we've split nicely mm. um but yeah and he there's a video of him he, he's, he's going like this he's dancing he was quite young so mm. he, he probably wasn't even two yet or maybe he'd just was it this year no it was like last year yeah it was last year last summer so he wasn't even two. Wow. You know what I mean? And he's like jigging to my music, knows mm. it's me. Yeah, it's amazing. And, and just finally, um, how do you feel like you'll sort of teach your son about sort of mental health and, and how to deal with that sort of thing when he grows up? Um, never say man up. Um, always tell him I love him. Because it's not weird for a man to tell other people that they love him. You know, I, I love my friends. I love my family. Uh, I love my son. I'll make sure you know he says love you too sometimes. Mm. You know what I mean. So he's get he's there. It's normal it's for just, him. Normalize it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just basically don't you know if if he's upset about something, just ask him why. Tell me why. What's up? That would be my approach. I'd I'd be the loving dad rather than the tough dad. Mm. I think. And obviously, being a dad has had a huge impact on your life. How have you sort of incorporated it into your songwriting as well? What's that? Being a... Being a dad, you know, have you incorporated it at all? You know, the, um, the, the changes, the moments, the milestones? Well, I think just in general, I think I'm a little bit more mature as a person in general. But, like, because when I'm with him, I, you know, even if we're at a party, I've taken him to a family party or something like that, I won't drink. I won't even have one if mm. I'm going to have him in the car. So mm. little things like that. But in terms of my... How's it impacted the songwriting? I'm not sure how it has. I think because he's not... An, because, it's funny to say, but he, because he's not a negative impact, mm. it's it's harder to write about positive things, really. When, because, oh, really? Because, okay. Well, just because other things are going so shit, like, mm. it's, when they're going crap, that's when, like, that's when you get the inspiration. And, scribbling, yeah. scribbling. and uh, you know, I try and try and get some hope in those songs as well. Mm. But I haven't, I haven't yet written a song about him because I don't think there's good enough words yet. I haven't figured it out, but... Um, yeah, I'm sure it will at some point. At some point. Yeah, mm. definitely. We wander down cobble streets Then retire to tired sheets 
one last little tangent I wanted to explore with you, Amir, which you were very keen to speak about before we came on the pod, which is football. Now, yeah. you're a big Arsenal fan, so yeah. just tell me what football gives you and how you use it with your mental health. Well, I don't think it's very good for my mental health. <laughs> yeah. at the moment. At the moment. Sometimes it isn't for me either. Honestly, be being an Arsenal fan nowadays is fucking rubbish. But, you know, you stick by your own. I think that's something it teaches you, is that you, you stick to something, don't mm. you? You know, you, you've attach yourself to something you're loyal to a team that you don't even know any of the players mm. but you're still loyal to this club mm. this horrendous thing you know <laughs> that is football but you know it's also I think when my dad got um two season tickets or when in fact before that when we were still at Highbury my first ever game February 2002 Arsenal Aston Villa one nil down at half time three one win mm. I'll never forget that. That was my first ever game, Highbury. My first ever game, we got relegated. Really? Mm. Oh, fucking rubbish. Oh, <laughs> so there's mate. the juxtaposition. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, man. I'm sorry to hear that. Don't worry. It's a good story. <laughs> we'll, I was get, five. We'll get on that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, it's like, that was my first ever game and I was hooked. I was absolutely hooked. The second ever game was when we got knocked out of the cup. Uh, when we drew two all and got knocked out on aggregate to Wigan and we were mm. sat behind the goal North Bank and they scored. I'll never forget that. But you're in by that point. You know, after you've been to a match, you're in. Whether they win or not, mm. you're, you're well cemented in. So then when my dad got season tickets when we moved to the new ground, he, we got, he got two season tickets. It's also time that you wouldn't normally get to spend with him. So after work, he'll, go in, he'll come in from the city into Arsenal. I'll come from home to Arsenal. We can meet. I'll meet up with my brother. It's time that I, I wouldn't normally get to spend with whoever it is in the family or mum that... Uh, and yeah, it's, it's a togetherness for us as well. It's something that we can, it's something we all have in common that we can do as well. And then you meet great people who basically you have nothing in common with them other than that football club. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing you've got in common, which is a beautiful thing. Mm. Racism is also something that, that seems to be creeping back into the sport more and yes. more, um, whether that's in the UK or abroad. As a fan mm-hmm. and someone who's come from a BAME background, did you ever experience that when you were younger? Did your dad ever experience it? And did he shield you from it? Um, I think he experienced it more. I, I didn't really get... I mean, on the pitch, I got packy quite a lot when I was playing. Mm. But... Uh, As a player, when you were like... In, oh, when I was playing. That, when yeah, I was yeah, playing, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But never from the sidelines. You know, parents mm. weren't shouting it. Because I think that's the most appalling thing is when the parents are shouting it. I've but heard then, stories about parents shouting that as well. Honestly, man. Yeah. There's some, some of the, when I was a kid, I, I used to play for Denham, right? Right. Now, that was a real mixed bag. So none of my teammates would have ever called me that or anybody else. But mm. certain teams you'd play, they're, they're obviously, they, where, you, where do you learn that from? Home. You see what I mean? You've learned yeah. that from home. It's so. not. T- it's not like innate within you it's it's taught isn't it it never yeah. is it never is I, I, it's completely taught racism mm. is taught mm. hatred is taught mm. you know what i mean love is not that's that's natural mm. hatred is definitely taught and to me I don't, I don't know how we would tackle racism in football i don't know how you're gonna do it because do you remember i don't know i don't know what club he plays for but um a black player swore at the fans for chanting Monkey noises, and he got sent off for it. Oh, it was. Um, Did yeah, you it share was, that? It was, yeah, I think it was from a Shakhtar Donetsk player. That's Shakhtar yeah, Donetsk, yeah. that's it. Fucking disgrace. And he, got, he, got, he was getting monkey chants from a group of fans. He kicked the ball towards them. Yeah. I think he swore and at he them. Swore at they them. stopped the game. They went back on, and he got sent off. Pathetic. Uh, like, honestly, Absolutely if there's pathetic. a video to sum up how bad racism is right now in that part of the world, yeah, that's it, it. It's that. And then, obviously, um, the England-Bulgaria game mm. at Bulgaria. How did you react to that when you saw it? I was at the pool hall, <laughs> right? Cause I, I'm a member at a pool, uh, snooker hall, pool hall. So I was watching it there, and just as I, and I actually went to the toilet. As I got back from the toilet, it was all kicking off. I was like, what is this? My reaction, I was disgusted, man. Because, mm. I mean, football, there's such a coming together of, of, of people. Mm. And... Just because I'm Asian or Indian or whatever, and you know the guy who sits next to me might be uh, a Greek guy or a Cypriot guy, and the guy on his other side is a a, a, a black guy, and the mm. guy on the other side is a, is a white guy, mm. we're all there to watch football. Mm. We all have this one thing in common, and I don't know what don't know, I don't think my Indian thing should ever even come into it. So monkey chants are fucking horrendous. Mm. And do you think it'll get worse before it gets better? 
in this country <sighs> and abroad? I don't... I hope it's not going to get worse. Mm. It just needs to stop. I don't understand why it's so normal. It, there's no place in it for football mm. for me. There's no place in it in the world as far as mm. I'm concerned. When, did your dad ever tell you about the times where he had perhaps been racially abused? Yeah, he said, well, he said uh, the first game he ever went to, actually, I think he was with his cousins and they went to a Gillingham match. Mm. And, uh, he was, at, Gillingham. Was, at Gillingham? At Gillingham. They were getting, getting it in the stands from Gillingham fans and they were in the Gillingham area. So he was just saying, yeah, we got Packy this and Packy that. And, you know... Sort of like shouted at them or literally face to face? No, like, I did shout, like, but from behind yeah, yeah. at them. You know, you don't turn, you don't turn around, do you? No. You wouldn't want to. But um, obviously he was young. He doesn't know how to, you don't know how to take it. Not when you're that not, age. Not, no. I, don't know, I don't know how old he was, but I mean, he moved to England when he was 11, so he can't have been much older than that, mm. which is shocking. But then I've, I've, had it, I've had it in pubs. I've had it in, do you know what I mean? Even nowadays, you know, I, I, haven't, been, I haven't been called the P word for a long time, but... I used to get it even in mm. even after I turned eighteen. Seems like now that, nowadays ago, you're getting, getting the more subconscious stuff. Like, oh, I didn't think you'd sound like that. Oh, oh I, I didn't think shit all like the time. that's that's. They will deny that's racist, but that's coming from a racially ingrained subconscious viewpoint. Yeah, that well, yeah. because you are of a certain ethnicity or whatever, you, you should be doing this or you should be sounding like that. Do you know what the other thing is? Is that I went out, I think last week with. Um, with a, a couple of my really close friends. Um, shout out Kyle, shout out Lisa. <laughs> and we were in Guildford, I think. I was wearing a poppy on my coat. Mm. And this guy comes up and he's like, mate, respect, respect. Because obviously <laughs> I'm a dark guy. Yeah. I'm a brown man wearing a poppy. I was like, well, how many British soldiers were also... <laughs> how many Indians <laughs> were in the British army? It's a fucking joke, man. Carl. I mean, I appreciate him saying, like, you know, well done. But, you know, luckily I'm not offended by that. Mm. Because I wear the poppy to... Because I should, mm. I we should, mm. For, you know the fallen soldiers. We should remember them because otherwise we wouldn't have the freedom we've got. Mm. So that's where I'm at. But um, you know, being being brown shouldn't have anything to do with it. Same as football. We wake up, then shake up, and carry on without a handbrake. Our final topic of conversation, Amir, and it's one that I have with all my special guests, which is, a, which is a general natter about our mental health. So firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment? Um, I'm okay. I'm a, bit, I'm, I'm a bit restless at the moment um, because, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for the studio days to kick in. You know, my son's birthday's coming up and I need to get in contact with his mum about it. Mm. That's stressing me out a bit. Um, obviously, Christmas is coming up mm. and, uh, you know, there's very little going on um, Activity-wise, in music at the moment, so right now I'm okay, but I'm 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 restless at the mm. moment. Yeah, a bit frustrated. Um, what age do you think you were when you f- perhaps first realised that, you know, a feeling that you had in your head or a, fe- a, th- a thought that you were having or an experience that you were having wasn't physical? Now it was actually in your mind. Um, the aftermath of when I, when I was ten, my cousin of fourteen months passed of meningitis. Fourteen months old. Yeah. Mm. And that was when I was questioning, because I was brought up Hindu. Mm-hmm. That's when I was questioning God. And then my grandfather died two years later, so I'd have been 12. And um, that's when I decided I don't believe in God anymore. Mm. And I struggled quite a lot maybe in the following months. And that's when I first wrote a song. Mm-hmm. And that's when I knew I could control my, um, my mental health and emotions through, through my music. Mm. That's when I first knew. Mm. And, and, and just touching on that quickly, you know, grief is such a, a powerful and multi-layered um, emotion. Mm. And I think on the pod, we, also, we I say a lot that grief is almost more stigmatised than mental health. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, because, you know, big boys ain't supposed to cry in public or whatever. But, you know, I, I, don't, I don't buy that. We, mm. we should cry. If you need to cry, cry. Mm. You know, male or female and everything in between, cry. Mm. Mm. Honestly, um, I didn't. Cry, I didn't cry when my um, uh, maternal grandfather died uh, last year. But I did die when my paternal grandmother died. You did. You did, this year. You did cry or did die? I cry. Oh, you I, cried. I didn't cry when he died oh, okay. last year because maybe because I wasn't as close and because I could see him suffering. Yeah. I was glad he was. He was. It's. It's over. Yeah. Whereas with my gran, who lived with us, helped bring me up. That was different, mm. and so, and I, I 
tried so hard to hold it together and just couldn't. Um, but then I think if I didn't cry, I'd, I'd be emotionally stunted, which I'm obviously not. Mm. I put my emotions into my music. And so that's how I control my grief mm. is through music. Mm. And if, uh, you know, if you don't want to cry in front of people, that's not shameful either. Go mm. and do it by yourself. Mm. You don't have to admit it. Just do you. Mm. Um, and we've, we've touched on it in the pod, but what tools do you find that really help you to improve your mental health or help you feel better? You know, which ones have you found that have worked and which ones haven't they been? Well, songwriting works, but then obviously as, as, it always, as demons always do, they go away for a bit and come back. Um, which is good, otherwise I'd run out of material. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but boxing, of course, helps. That that keeps it at bay when I'm... Basically, for me, I need to be busy. I need to be kept busy. And I've got no demons when my son Ronnie's around mm. because I'm keeping an eye on making sure he doesn't bang his head and stuff like mm. that and having a great time, staying smiling, please don't cry, blah, blah, blah. Play with your toys, let's have a go. Play mm. on your drums, you mm. know. Just try... I, for me, exercise, filling up the day and not not doing nothing enough also can i just say ice skating i know you love your ice skating oh, as well oh man yeah. honestly I, st- I i skated since i was 13 until i was about 20 a football injury since since then i haven't i haven't skated until 2 days ago so that was one of the first that times because i saw that on your back. Instagram. you saw the video like, yeah, yeah. yeah 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 oh god i felt good yeah i felt so good and uh, yeah so that's that's also something really good if you got i, I i'll go skating by myself and just just go round and hockey, get, get that hockey into that, stops, get out of your headspace. Yeah. yeah, just you know. And playing snooker is also another thing mm. that that's when I that's when I really don't feel like I'm doing anything to do with music or anything to do with life. I'm just concentrating on the game, and that's when the outside world doesn't matter. Mm. Toxic masculinity is something we we try and break down and to talk about a lot in this pod. I mean, yeah. I wanted to briefly just touch upon it through through your South Asian heritage. You know, through that lens, how have you found sort of masculinity viewed within that community? You know, are there different expectations that you've had placed upon yourself or of men in general within that community as opposed to, say, maybe your, your white friends or, or black friends, etc.? I don't actually think it's that different. Mm. I think it's, it's all to do with era, isn't it, really? Mm. And I think, um, you know, I, I, I don't think my dad's ever said man up to me or my brother, but he has always said, if anyone gives you any shit, fucking don't take, you mm. don't take any crap. Mm. You know, so he's taught us how to be a man to without survive. saying mm. man up. You know, he's taught us how to be men. Mm. Um, but then that's, you know, the brutal side of it, rather than, you know, how do you be a compassionate man? Well, you show compassion. You be the man that shows compassion. My dad hugs me and tells me he loves me all the time, so that's where I've learnt it from, so I'm going to tell my son the same. So, mm. But... Um, yeah, I don't think there's really... I don't think it's a difference in, in culture of man up. I think it's very much era. Mm. However, culturally, I think Indians are stuck in a very, very ancient era. Mm. And that's not just the toxic masculinity thing. That's many traditions that make, in my opinion, no sense. It's like wedding rituals and things mm. like that. It's stuff that just doesn't make any sense to do it. Now, you still spend eight hours doing it. and yeah. You know what I mean? So I think culturally... Uh, the South Asian is, is, a, is a lot further behind in comparison to England, to British, mm. but um, not my family. Mm. And what more do, you, do we have to do to ensure that men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in, in opening up about their mental health issues or conditions? Basically, not being scared of the truth, as, as a parent, not being scared of the truth, you know. It's like I listened to your mate Lloyd Taylor mm. on the way big, here. Big actually. fan of Lloyd. Yeah, he's love a, Lloyd. Honestly, what a character. He's a top yeah. <laughs> but when he was talking about like when his dad said, "I'm proud of you" and stuff mm. like that, that that needs to be more. Mm. There needs to be more of that. Mm. You know, when people say, "Oh, I'm not really feeling all that good," compassion needs to be there mm. because a lot of times it's just like, "Why are you crying? What are you upset about?" Mm. That's such a terrible tone to speak mm. to somebody who is emotionally distressed. Mm. You need to show some compassion and, and make that normal. Mm. That's what needs to be, that's what needs to change. And just finally, why do you think throughout history uh, and maybe even up to the last 10 years, have we as men found it difficult to break down those barriers? Because, because of old school idiots making fun of you, mm. isn't it? I think it's just... And disguising it as banter and all that crap. Well, the disguising it as banter is one of the most toxic things 
ever because I think I can definitely tell the difference between banter and something really vicious. Yeah. And then just disguising it with, oh, I was only joking, isn't fucking good enough. My mum taught me that because I used to do it. You mm. know, I used to no, mum, I was only joking. It's like, you can't just, you can't paper it's over it. It's not just. You yeah. can't paper yeah. over that. You know, you've said it now and it's like, okay, fine. So my mum's taught me that. So I, I don't say anything I don't mean. But you, the other thing is, is that when you're in a group of mates, then it's totally different. Mm. And you can take the piss. Mm. But somebody that you've just met or you barely know, you know, there's a, there's, there's a line. There's a line yeah. of familiarity you need to get to first. And I think if, if you go beyond that before you get to be too familiar with them, you're never going to, you, you know, you're never going to get away with it. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this edition of the Just Checking In podcast. Amir, thank you so much for being my special guest on this edition's pod and for checking in with me. I wish you the best of luck with the hopefully new album coming out next year and for the rest of your shows. Um, For anyone who wants to follow you on social media, sort of get listening to you, where can they go? You can go to Amir Official UK across all social media. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, um, Snapchat, all of it. Amir Official UK, A-M-I-R Official UK, all one word. And, um, yeah, that's me done. As always, thank you to all the vendors who tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give this a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Or if you're feeling really generous, write us a review on iTunes. Now, normally, we have our wonderful friends in Patawawa play us out on our outro. But for your Just Checking In Pod, Amir, we're going to have Feel For You, one of the singles off your album, play us out instead. Go for it, man. Thank you. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent. Time is now.